Some of you may know me, maybe some of you don't. You see me around perhaps on campus. So my name there, Carl Hargrove, an elder here at Grace Church. And um, I head up our ministry called Grace Advance, where we help churches around North America to start and revitalize, and also pastor the Anchor Fellowship Group that meets here first hour right across the hallway, but we're the room is being renovated, so my voice carries even more in that room until they get it done. But that's been a great um, time ministering with those people. And also at the seminary, some of the dean of students at the master's seminary and teach there as well. So a busy life, but um, privileged life. It really is to be able to minister to God's people. And, and I'm glad that you're here this morning for this session. And providence in pain, making sense of suffering. Um, we all agree that everyone experiences suffering at some point in time, do we not? Everyone in this room has experienced it. Now, we start with this thought, if you will, as we say we're on this life's journey. And in that journey, there are many stops along the way. And often, sometimes we dock, we'll call it in a port, that can bring suffering and pain. How many of you have ever been on a cruise before? Oh, it's fun. If, if you haven't, uh, it's a great experience. It's great to go and you go to sleep at night and you can wake up in another country. Um, and it's wonderful. And you go and explore there and you go and maybe it's 12 hours later and you're in another city or uh, even again, another country. You go to these different places and the cultures can change drastically based on your itinerary. And we go through life, and sometimes in life, God takes us in one port, if you will, and there's a great deal of happiness and joy, and there's support that's there. But then we go to another stage in life, and we dock, if you will, and it's difficulty and heartache and pain, and maybe there's doubt. And one is wondering, where's the support that's needed at this stage in my life. We go through those stages, do we not? And everyone here, you have been to that port, and it's just full of joy. And then you go to another point and port, if you will, and it's heartache and it's pain and it's difficulty and it's straining you, and you wonder why. And when we go back to this comparison of going on a cruise, you can choose that itinerary. My wife and I are hoping that one day we, we really want to go on one that takes us through the Panama Canal. We'd love to go see parts of um, Central America and South America. We'd love to do that. And we would say this city would be great and that city would be great. But no one in this room, if you were to create an itinerary for your life, would say at some point in time, I want to visit pain and suffering. No one does that. No one says, yes, after a period of of joy and contentment and just seems like life is so well, I would like to dock in pain and suffering. But we know it's going to happen, don't we? Eventually you're going to land there, if you will. And the question is, once you disembark and you begin to explore, you have to know that the Lord is with you. Just to keep with that analogy in your mind, the Lord is with you wherever you go. When you disembark and you're in that place and it's painful and it's hurtful, know that the Lord is with you in that difficulty. And so we ask ourselves a question, how do you make sense of suffering? How, how can we understand it? 
And a part of the approach that we're going to take is this. Um, look at the biblical and theological argument for God's providential goodness. So what we have to first establish is that we serve a good God. Do we all agree with that this morning? That we serve a good God. And in his goodness, we can rest in that goodness. And when we find ourselves docked at that place of pain and suffering and doubt, we can say the Lord is good. Here's some, another way that we're going to argue through this or walk through it. We're going to look at a biblical and practical argument showing God's purpose for suffering. Why does he allow suffering? Why difficulty? Why can't we just take that out of the itinerary? I don't want to stop there. Can't we bypass it? Can't we skip that city? Can't we skip that port? Can't we go to the next instead? But life just isn't that way. And there's a reason that God allows us to go through difficulty and heartache and pain. There's a reason that people shed certain tears. There's a reason they go through a period in life when they're strained and they seem to be at the end of themselves. God has a purpose behind it, but we have to first establish the providential goodness of God. And if we can establish that God is in fact good, then we can look through everything else through that lens. But if we can establish that and our lenses aren't correct, they're blurry, then we'll have difficulty when we do dock. And there are four parts to as we walk through this, and it would be this way. Number one is rest in providence during difficulty as you understand its definition. That is, what does it mean, providence? What is this word, providence? What does it mean that God is providential? So if we're going to establish God's providential goodness, we have to understand this word, providence. And I'm going to give you some definitions of it. And um, I see some of you taking pictures. Some of the definitions will be a little bit longer. Don't worry about trying to write it all down if you're trying to do that, because what I'll do, uh, this presentation, I'll give it to the media department, and they'll post it along with the audio, okay? So just so you know that. The number, let me go back. I'm sorry. A rest in providence during difficulty as you consider its scope. How broad is the providential goodness of God? How far is the reach of God's providence? And then we can say rest in providence during difficulty, knowing God is absolutely free. Now, we have to establish that. We have to establish the absolute freedom of God. God is free to do as he pleases. And we're going to consider some scriptures that talk about this idea. Psalm 115 tells us that God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is absolutely free. And nothing constrains God in him showing his sovereign will, acting on his sovereign will. And then number four, rest in providence during difficulty, knowing God's reason are reasons for allowing pain. There's a reason behind it. Now, understand this, you may not ever discover every reason in this life. So don't think that you're going to walk away from here knowing, oh, I went to that Sunday in July session, and now I know every reason for the difficulty I'm facing now or have faced or I know the reason for the difficulty in the future. Not the case. Uh, there are elements of our pain and suffering that we go through. We may never discover in this life, why did I go through that? 
Now, I'm assured once we're in heaven and we will be as he is, that we will have a perspective that is divine and we can look back and say, oh, I get it. And there are even times in this life where God allows us to do that, doesn't he? We go through difficulty and in the midst of it, we're wondering why is it happening now? And then later on, we can look back and say, oh, I understand. I see more clearly now. But in the midst of it, we're wondering and at times we're, we're doubting. What's some of the pain that we face? Well, think about it. There's illness. Uh, We face that illness ultimately because of our fallen nature, because of our fallenness. We have aches and pains, and sometimes there's a diagnosis that one receives that they never want to hear. Maybe there is pain or suffering because we're rejected by loved ones, and that can come through divorce. That's a part of suffering and pain. That could be emotional rejection that takes place. The death of loved ones, most likely everyone in this room, I know I'm, uh, it's obvious that everyone in this room, you have experienced the loss of a loved one. Someone has died, a parent, a, a child, a spouse, infants. We think about why that little life, why is that little life taken away? The unborn, that's pain and suffering. Persecution. Uh, criticism that may come, injustice, imprisonment, martyrdom. We have brothers and sisters uh, in other parts of this world that they are going through pain and suffering. Their lives have been taken. I just saw um, an article this morning posted by one of the profs at the seminary, and he and I have been following certain stories about persecution in Africa. And in Nigeria, it's at, um, because of the division between Muslims and Christians, And certain radical Muslims have, over these last several years, um, have been incredibly uh, difficult toward believers. As a matter of fact, I saw this recent article that in the last four days, 200 Christians were killed because of their faith. That's pain and suffering. One asks, why? Why didn't you protect them? Why wouldn't you protect your children? If I am a father, I'm going to protect my family as best I can. I would intervene. I would stop it. I wouldn't allow it to happen. And if God is this providentially good God, if we say that he's perfect and he's loving and he's kind, why does he allow his children to experience pain and suffering and difficulty? Why doesn't he intervene every time? And then there's a loss of property. We see that from these people, property taken from them. We see it throughout Scripture property taken from believers. That's in part why uh, the churches that Paul writes to, the churches at Jerusalem are incredibly poor because of the persecution that they're undergoing. Or even when we just view the innocent suffer, when they're going through difficulty, that's a suffering for us. At least it should be if you have a Christian compassionate heart and you see other people suffering, then you should feel some pain as well. It's not just when you experience the pain directly, but it's when others experience that pain that creates even some of your own. So this first consideration, rest in providence during difficulties, you can understand its definition. Charles Hodge wrote this in his Systematic Theology, Volume 1. He said, God's work of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Providence, therefore, includes preservation and government. 
preservation and government. God is controlling all his creatures. It is by his wise, holy, and powerful governance, preserving. Okay? Another definition for you, Millard Erickson in his work, Christian Theology, he writes, the providence of God means the continuing action of God in preserving his creation and guiding it toward his intended purposes. Preservation means that God maintains the creature that he brought into existence. Government means that God is actively engaged in achieving his purposes in his creation and that sin cannot thwart those purposes. Amen for that, right? Sin is rampant, but that doesn't mean that now, God, I would have done this for you, but sin has been a blockade for me. I would have intervened, but they're entirely too evil. It is overpowering me. That's not even a consideration for God. And we'll even learn later how, as you have heard before, I'm sure, or given thought yourself, how sin in the hands of a providential God that is used for his sovereign purposes. Listen to Wayne Grudem and his, from his systematic theology. God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. He cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do and directs them to fulfill, fulfill, fulfill I'm sorry, his purposes. They're going to fulfill his purposes. So he's involved continually. He cooperates, and then we are fulfilling his purposes. So this is providence. A.A. A. Hodge, providence from pro and video, literally meaning foresight, and then a careful arrangement prepared beforehand for the accomplishment of predetermined ends. Turretin, uh, Turretin defines this term as its widest sense, including foreknowledge, foreordination, and the efficacious administration of the thing decreed. That is, God is going to effectively bring about his desired plan. Consider someone that you may know, MacArthur and Mayhew. What did they say in their Bible doctrine? Divine providence is God's preserving his creation, operating in every event in the world, and directing the things in the universe to his appointed end for them. John Owen said this, the effectual working of his power and almighty acts of his will whereby he sustains, governs, and disposes all things, men and their actions, to the ends which he has ordained for them. Which he has ordained for them. And this thought as well, the last part is what I want us to see, that God in his eternal decree in time, by means of second causes, he has originated in creation. So God, when we say second causes, he's using other people and he's using other things to bring about those ends, okay? Karl Barth said this, it is God fulfills his fatherly lordship over his creation by preserving, um, he does what? Accompany and ruling the, the whole course of its earthly existence. But you obviously see what's highlighted here, his fatherly what? Lordship. It's good to know that we have a heavenly father, but yet this heavenly father is Lord over creation. 
And just briefly, Bruce Ware, just right in the middle, it says he preserves in existence and provides for the creation he has brought into being. Providentially watching over, he preserves it, he provides for it, he governs it. Nothing can thwart his plans. He is doing it by his foreordination. He's doing it by his power. He's doing it according to his foresight. His purposes will be fulfilled. So what are some key words that sort of come out? We said what? Number one is holy. God is a holy God, absolutely distinct, set apart. And all of his purposes will fulfill his holy desire. God is all wise. Do we all agree with that? And we think about wisdom. Wisdom is this idea. I'll pause for a moment. Uh, I'll let you interact with me for a moment. When you think about wise, what other words may come to mind? You say wisdom is what? What is wisdom? Okay, the application of knowledge. Someone, we could say that, absolutely. Um, what else might be another way of thinking about wisdom? Skillful living. And ultimately, you know, the word really comes down to that. It's this ability to live skillfully. And so God in his wisdom can act skillfully in bringing about his purposes. He is a wise God. A person may say, well, that's a wise individual. Why do we say that? There's a certain skill they have in life. They can navigate life. And of course, the opposite is the fool. The fool is what? The fool is clumsy. They don't have foresight. They don't think about um, the consequences of their actions. It is often in the here and now, and at times a fool doesn't have a plan. God is an all-wise God. We think about his power. So nothing can thwart God is an all-powerful God. Therefore, the question um, should resonate with us when a person is going through difficulty. Surely, God has the power to say to any individual, as we saw perhaps throughout the the Testaments and in the gospel accounts of Jesus Christ, simply speaking a word, and someone would be healed. So why why doesn't he do that today? He's all-powerful. He can. The Scripture tells us in Hebrews, he upholds the very universe by the word of his power. He's an all-powerful God. But right now, it may not seem that way. Then there's the idea of preservation. So God has created, and then providence says he is preserving his creation according to his end, government. The idea that he is involved with his creation. He is not distant from it. Our God is not a, a, a deist view of God. He, he is not a God that is created and then he steps away from creation and he's not engaged with it. God is governing his creation. Now, what happens, um, you know, in elections? What do we do when elections come around? We make a choice, do we not? We're saying to ourselves, who will govern this district, this city, this town, uh, this state, this country better? And we make a decision based on how we think they're going to govern. And at times we can be critical of people that don't govern well. They're sloppy. They're inconsiderate. They're really not thinking about their constituents. They're not qualified to actually govern well. God is absolutely, we all agree, qualified to govern his creation. He's involved in it. There is a sense of foreknowledge. God having foresight, knowing the future. 
for ordination, then it means that now God has ordained certain ends. Think with me for a moment. I'm standing here right now because of God's foreordination. How is that? That before there is a creation, before I even exist, before there is even a star, God knew that I would be here, and he set in order the circumstances that I would interact with in that I would be here this day, this moment, talking to you about making sense of suffering at Grace Community Church. And I can, if, if all of us were to just go back through our life and, and put together the pieces, and if you will, if we were to throw the pieces in the air of this puzzle and we were to try to put them back together again, it might take us some time to do it. But nonetheless, we would be able to, oh, I remember meeting that person. And that person talked to me about this. And then I visited that church. And maybe then I became saved. And after I became saved, I was at a church and I really wasn't growing well. Then someone said, you should listen to this guy that's on the radio called Max something. And all of a sudden you listen to him and you say, oh, that's really what I need. And you find out about this church and you hear and you grow. And this story goes on and on and on. And there are a million different ways to think about how that might work out. And there are so many stories, even in this room, that you're here now. And for you that know the Lord, uh, there's stories in this room that says, I came to the Lord because of these people. And why were those people there? And why did he share the gospel with you? And why why did that person just happen to be there who just happened to tell you about a church? Because of foreordination. Bart referred to his his fatherly governance. That is, God is watching over his children. Uh, The word came up, we didn't pay that much attention to peculiar. And some would say there's a peculiar providence. What that means is God is in the details. See, or we might even say particular, particular providence. Yes, there's an overall providence. God is guiding the whole universe. But then there's a peculiar, particular providence, which says this, and it is thoroughly biblical, Um, In the scriptures, it tells us in Matthew that God knows even the birds that do what? That hop on the ground. That is particular providence. God knows the very hairs on your head. That's particular providence, isn't it? You talk about particular, that's particular, isn't it? God knows every circumstance in your life. This is particular providence, how it unfolds for you. All the circumstances of your life, you know it. And there may be moments a person may think, well, where is God? Does he even know? Of course he does. His creation that he is watching over. How about this? Number two, rest in providence during difficulty as you consider its scope. And the first thing is this idea of transcendence. What is transcendence? Um, It's this eternal truth that God, because of he, he is what? Eternally perfect in his holy nature, he stands above creation. Let's look at it in Isaiah. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah. So God stands above his creation because of who he is. So transcendence in 
Isaiah. Isaiah 6, 1 to 5, familiar text. King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. How, how did he see the Lord? What does it say there? On his where? On a throne, lofty and exalted. They're crying out to him, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. He recognizes the fact that he is a sinner because he has seen the king, the Lord of hosts, or he's seen the Lord of, of armies. This is God's transcendence, this idea of being exalted. You might even consider 2 Corinthians 26 and 23 as well. So transcendence, God is above his creation. Look with me, Isaiah 52 and 13. It tells us what of the suffering servant. The servant shall be high and lifted up, or he shall be high and exalted. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Look at Isaiah 55, if you will. Isaiah 55, then verse 9. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, or for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your what? Than your thoughts. Look at Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57 and then 15. One of my favorite verses, it says, For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. So God is transcendent. But he is also this, the eminence of God. This is what we might say is a redemptive um, condescension of God. And what does he do? He seeks the good of men and his glory by doing what? He is personally engaged with the affairs of mankind, which means that God is personally engaged with your life. He knows every detail about your life. He knows your future. He has it in his hands. We see this also um, through Isaiah. If we go back to Isaiah 55, now the eminence of God in Isaiah 6 is the fact that God then engages with him and God forgives. And Isaiah 55, if we turn there, if you will, then in verse 11, we saw in verse 9 how, how, how high he is. And then in verse 10, for as the rain and the snow come down from the heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bear and sprout and furnishing the seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so my word which goes forth from my mouth will not return to me what? Void or empty. See, this is God engaging with creation. So God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate, this is the ultimate expression of eminence, God with us. But it's also God giving us his word. It is God giving the prophets. It is God speaking through the apostles. It is now God speaking through his church. Now go to Isaiah 57. We saw earlier how lofty he is, but what we should also understand is this. Yes, he is in a high and holy place, but notice what it says in the second part of verse 15 of Isaiah 57. And also with the contrite and lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So this same God who is high and transcendent is also God that's engaged with people. And to that we can say amen. I'm glad that he's engaged with us. So some considerations. When we think about its scope, 
Uh, it obviously has no boundaries whatsoever because God has no boundaries. So in its scope, we can say, number one, the scope of his providence in ordering all creation as its author. God is the author of creation. And when we think about an author, what comes to mind? Someone tell me, think about an author, what comes to mind? What's that? A book, a story. Okay. And the author does what when he decides to write the book? I'm in, I mentioned it in the workshop that I did several weeks ago about this book that I'm writing on prayer, and I have this outline. I, I think I know the direction I want it to go. Uh, I simply didn't say, let's just start writing a book, and let's see what happens. There may be some people that are creative that way. They can do it. They can just sit down at a desk and say, let's just start writing. But the normal course is to do what? Let me think through where I want it to go. How will this end? And God is the author of all. He is the creator of all. And he knows the beginning from the end. Amen? He is the alpha and the omega. Number two, in ordering the material universe, God is holding, holding all things together by his absolute power. Number three, he is a God of providence in his scope because he's preserving all life. God gives life to the earth itself and it bears fruit. He gives life to us, the very breath that we have. He is preserving us right now by his providence. Number four, in ordering the nations. God does what? He raises up nations and he pulls them down. Who can give me an example, a biblical example of God um, pulling down a nation? Yes. Babylon, absolutely. Can you think of another? Uh, Assyria. Absolutely. And but at one point in time, he did raise up Babylon, did he not? For a purpose. And he says, now my providential plan is unfolding. Now I will do it. I will humble you. God has, and he's still doing that in history. The nations are but a bucket or a drop in the bucket. He controls all things. Number five, in directing the lives of his children. We can look at God's providential hand through our lives and we should be able to marvel and take a sense of satisfaction and comfort that he is ordering our very lives, all the circumstances surrounding it. And then number six, and using evil and suffering for his purposes. God uses it. It is in fact the idea that all things work together for to those who love God and are called what? According to his purpose. Evil suffering is used in the hands of a father who can take it and orchestrate it for his glory and your good. Now, a quick exercise with me. Biblical examples of providence. Okay, here's some books throughout the Bible. And if you can look at it for a moment, I'm going to do this. Um, Okay, I'm looking at the time and trying to factor in Q&A. Do this with with your neighbor. Pick one of these books. Think about what would be an act of providence in any one of these books. Just one, okay? So take a couple moments and do it. Like, say, for instance, in the book of, hmm, should I give you a hint? What do you think? Job. (laughs) I think we know we see providence, right? Okay, we see providence unfolding. But look at the other books and think about it. How might we see providence in one of these books, okay? So turn to your neighbor or to yourself or scribble something down, and I'll come back and interact with you in a minute, okay? 
take, take three minutes, maybe. I'll put on my timer. All right, you got the partner up there. There's your partner. Which one are you choosing? We're going to look for a... Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some good stuff in Acts. Okay. What do you think? Hmm? Proverbs. yes. Okay, how do we see it in Proverbs? Um, okay. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Okay, good. That's right. So we, we learn the Word of God, and He helps us direct us in life. And so, yes. Exodus. Exodus, yes. The providence of God unfolding, right, with Egypt. And He delivers His people. Okay, good. And providence, here is Moses that is born, right? Who would be a deliverer of His people. Okay. Okay, good. All right. Okay, those are good examples. Excellent. All right. Okay. Um, I think I heard you. I'm going to... All right. Someone tell me. Some volunteers. A book. And where do you see providence in the book? Okay, Genesis. Really? Like, what's... Okay, what? No, tell us. Okay, Joseph. All right. Joseph, the providence of God. Um, he would be in Egypt, famine in the land. And who, who caused the famine ultimately? But yet God has sent him ahead. If you look at Psalm, uh, actually 105 sort of gives you a history of Israel. And it's interesting. It says in Psalm 105, God sent Joseph ahead. Wait a minute. Hold on. Didn't his brothers betray him? And didn't they sell him into slavery? Yes. And did God send him? Yes. So here's providence. Yes. Let's see. Yes. Adam and Eve after the fall. Okay, finish the thought. That's right. Sure. It, that's right. It's all in order. God is not reactionary to the fall. It's not, I really had intended for this to just be paradise. Now what do I do? No, okay, boom. It's lambs, sacrifices, altars, temple. Yes, okay, that sounds like a plan. Now, let's go. No, this is all a part of God's plan because guess what? John the Baptist, remember, he sees Jesus Christ coming. John the Baptist says, behold the... Slain before the foundation of the world. Oh my, that sounds like foreordination. Indeed it is. Okay, give me another book. Yes. Okay.
Não. Pode ser. Sure. So we see the wrath of God unfolding um, on mankind. And we see, obviously, his redemption. We see, remember, we talked about transcendence, imminence. Uh, and we see the imminent expression of Jesus Christ coming to the earth again, does he not? And he sets up a kingdom. This is providence unfolding. Here's his word unfolding. What else do we see? Another book. Yes. Exodus. Exodus. Okay. That's right. Think about that. This is providence. And how did he preserve him? Remember that story. I mean, think about that. And, the, and, the, and then all of a sudden, they just happened to be there at that time to take him out of the waters. No, that's providence unfolding. He knew that they would be there at that moment. Well, it's another example. You know, the little kid song we used to say, he's got the whole world in his hand, right? <laughs> the whole world in his hands. That's it. Okay. Let's not do that. All right. What else? Another book. Ruth. Oh, my. That's right. She comes upon the field of Boaz. This is providence unfolding. Even the, the death that's surrounding the book itself. There's providence unfolding. What else do we see? Any other book you want to choose here? Yes, okay. Oh, my. Yeah. Sure. Now think about it. He will suffer for my name. Yeah, so providence. Okay, there, all the other books have acts of providence throughout them. Every book you see providence unfolding. Here's a thought. You may have to be a little older to remember that. <laughs> Some of the younger people are like, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. And so... And this is literally what it is. What will be, will be. And so we can have an attitude, well, que sera, sera. Now, there's truth behind it because God has foreordained our lives. But we cannot take an attitude that says whatever will be, will be, and we become indifferent. We become passive. We're actively engaged in evangelism. We are engaged in telling people about the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Because one can take an extreme view of providence, of sovereignty, and say, well, if God has ordained that they be saved, then they will be saved. Yes, but God has chosen means. Means. You're a part of those means that people would hear the gospel. So granted, what will happen in life will happen in life, but yet we are engaged. Here's a third consideration. 
rest in providence during difficulty, knowing that God is absolutely free. Can you say that with me? Absolutely free. Absolutely free. This is so important that you understand this. Because what happens then, if we don't have a correct view of God and his absolute freedom, then people will say, then God must act in this way or he should act in this way. This is the madness of the prosperity gospel in part because they don't have a correct view of God and who he is. God is absolutely free. And that freedom, he will allow difficulty and pain at times. They have orchestrated a God that is not a biblical God. It's not. So what does this mean that God is absolutely free? Number one, God's chief aim is to glorify himself. Why did in the Exodus, God raised up Pharaoh ultimately that what? He would be glorified. Um, We see this in Isaiah throughout. The idea that God is exalting himself, that he would be glorified and he would share his glory with none other. Look with me to the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33. So Exodus, Psalm 16, 4, Isaiah 43, 21. We see Isaiah 61, 3 and 11. Isaiah 33, verse 9, says what? It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I will do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and all the peace that I will make for it. They will tremble in fear before whom? Before God. He's exalting his name. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, of course. Ephesians 1 tells us what? All is done, our salvation comes about to the praise of his what? His glory, which is saying to the praise of his name. The same thought is in Colossians 4 and 15. So we have to understand from the beginning, the first order of business God's chief aim is to glorify himself. Some uh, have misunderstood the idea of God's purposes and say, God's chief aim is my happiness. Ah, is it really? No, God's chief aim is to glorify himself, that he be recognized. And number two, we have to understand that God is creator. It's obvious. In the beginning, Hebrews 1, he upholds all things by the word of his power. It's Colossians 1, all things by him, for him, to him, unto him, God is the creator, and therefore as the creator, he has the right to act freely. It is the idea that he is the potter and the clay. Number three, God is perfect. God is a perfect God. Look with me at Job chapter 37. God is a perfect God. We are imperfect beings, and therefore sometimes when we process life, we process it imperfectly. It is the the impossibility for God to err because of his perfect nature. We see this in Deuteronomy 32 and 4, Psalm 18. But let's look at Job 37 and 16. And it says, do you know about the layers of thick clouds? The wonders of one perfect in knowledge. And of course, Elihu is making his speech to Job and his friends and essentially correcting their limited thinking about God and a a series of rhetorical questions that all be met with, no, 
I have no answer to that. God is one perfect in knowledge. We, as we said before, God is an all-wise God. We see this in Job. Since we're in Job, let's go back to Job 11. It's also true in Romans 11. Paul stresses this greatly in Romans 11, the wisdom of God. Proverbs 8 is a great declaration of wisdom that speaks. In Job 11, verse 6, it says, <clears throat> um, I'll start at verse 5, but would that God might speak and open his lips against you and show you the secrets of wisdom, for sound wisdom has two sides. Know then that God forgets a part of your iniquity. Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? They are high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol, what can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. If he passes by or shuts up or calls an assembly, who can restrain him? Essentially saying when God acts, no one can thwart his plan. Verse 11, for he knows the false men and he sees iniquity without investigating. An all-knowing God that is wise. He's all-knowing. Psalm 139, Deuteronomy 29, the secret things belong to him. God, number six, God is all-loving. Psalm 136, in every verse in Psalm 136 it says his loving kindness is everlasting. We know 1 John 4 and 8, God is love. Now, stop for a moment. How is this love expressed? We can say this, his love is undaunted by circumstances. See, nothing can stop the Lord. Say, you say, but this seems to be so basic. But here's a question. Uh, in my experience in dealing with people, in life, when life is difficulty, it seems to me that sometimes we just need to go back to the basics, don't we? And we need to r- remind our soul, stop, soul. Hold on, soul. You say, is that biblical? Thoroughly biblical. Um, Psalm 42 and 43. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? The refrain comes up um, twice in 42, again in 43. Why are you downcast, oh, my soul? Put your hope in God. It's a reminder that sometimes in life, what we must do is stop and say, soul, you're downcast. Soul, you're doubting the Lord. Soul, you're wondering if God is there in the midst of your pain or that other person's pain. Oh, why did you lose that loved one? Or why are you faced with this cancer? Whatever it may be. But we have to remind ourselves of these truths. He is undaunted by circumstances. Nothing can thwart the plans of God. It is also this. His love is consistent through the Testaments. Some people in their juvenile approach to understanding theology and God and even the Scriptures would have us to believe that the God of the Old Testament is different than, oh, my word. Have they ever studied Hosea? And seeing this faithful God that is loving and sinful people, have they not considered the patience of God through judges? Have they not seen the many times that God would send his people to exile, but yet his compassions, as the scriptures say, are kindled inside of him? And even a scripture I was considering recently from Isaiah, and, and it's, the scripture's talking about God that is going to weep for Moab. Weep for Moab? Why would God weep for Moab? 
and God is going to judge Moab, this nation that is absolutely opposed to God and to his ways, but because God is a God of compassion, even for his enemies, he weeps for them. These people have not studied the scriptures. Then his love is extended generally to the world. God has a general love for the world. See, his providential hand is expressed in the world every day. There are people that God blesses who hate him. You agree with that? How is that manifested every day? Someone tell me. God blesses people that may even hate him. He gives them breath. What else does he do for them? The common grace is extended to them. Uh, Recently, we had record rains in California, did we not? And who benefited from those rains? Everyone did. The farmers in the Central Valley benefited from those rains. You can go now, if you go down the 126 and you see um, now certain crops are coming up, some have been harvested. And some of those people do not believe in God. As a matter of fact, some may even say there is no God. But he expressed a general love towards them, which means also then when they stand before the living God on the other side of eternity, they'll have to give an account for that. Amen. And that's where it comes up. You, you are the perfect lead into this statement right here. See, we're, we're partners right here. She just said he sent his only son. Amen. His love is, is experienced, what, redemptively by the elect. He calls us to himself through his providence. We can say that God is holy. We can say that God is wrathful. This is a part of his expression. God is a kind God. He expresses his kindness towards us. The kindness of God appearing, it tells us in um, Titus, but also in Ephesians. Look at Ephesians with me, chapter 2. Go to Ephesians 2. Psalm 145.9 expresses the kindness of God. 1 Peter 2 and 3, the kindness of God. But look at Ephesians chapter 2, expressed here as well. Ephesians 2, and then 7 and 8. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Then, of course, we know verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. So notice the statement, though. So that in the ages to come, God might display to all mankind that he is a kind and loving God. And we participate in that. God is all-powerful. He can stop anything at any point in time, but he does not always choose to do so. So we look at our key words, and what are our key words? God is going to glorify himself. God is creator. God is perfect. God is wise. God is all-loving. He's all-knowing. He's holy. He's wrathful. He's kind. He's all-powerful. God is a providential God. And we must remind ourselves sometimes in the midst of difficulty, all these truths, go to these verses, look them up, meditate on them. Lord, help me to believe this in this moment right now. Lord, help me to share this with another person, but to do it with a sense of compassion and gentleness and understanding. 
And at times I think what we can do, we believe great truths like this, and then a person is going through difficulty, and they haven't arrested all of their emotions yet, and maybe they're doubting the Lord. And what we want to do is take an approach that is a bit abrupt, and we have these expectations that sometimes we don't even meet ourselves of them, and essentially we come to chastise them because they're doubting God. That's not right. You should come to console a person and comfort a person and encourage a person. Not how dare you. Um, Here's the fourth consideration. Rest in providence during difficulty knowing God's reason or reasons for allowing pain. So we're going to talk about four principles to end our time. And then I'm going to take some questions for you. Unless right now we'll use, do you have any questions about anything that we've said so far? Any questions at all? Okay, great. Let's move on. Fourth principle here. Then we're going to look at four principles that help support it. Number one, God orders pain and providence for love, chastisement, and glory. So familiar with Job, I'm sorry, not Job, but Genesis 50:20. Joseph makes the classic statement, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for for good. How is that? How, how did Joseph understand that? We say somehow through his relationship to the Lord as he spent time not only in the pit, as he would spend time incarcerated because of the false accusations of Potiphar's wife, as he would spend time then forgotten by the others whom he had helped. But yet, isn't it interesting that in God's providential hand, how is Joseph exalted from prison? How is Joseph exalted from prison? Uh, What are the circumstances surrounding it? What happens? He was in charge, but he's still in jail. So somewhat of an upgrade, but he's still in jail. How is he released? He remembered him because it said there is one who has sort of the spirit of the gods in him. He can devise this. And what happened? Pharaoh sends for Joseph and Joseph cleans up himself. And Joseph then interprets what the Pharaoh has seen. Remember now, this boy, he was 17 who dreams dreams. And he tells his dreams and his dreams cause him to be cast into prison or sold into slavery, then ultimately prison. And now this dream of dreams can now do this for the Lord. He's brought out. But he's only brought out because God is going to bring about what? A famine on the land. Providence unfolded. So Joseph has a perspective when his brothers come to say, yes, it was evil. And you're responsible for it. But nonetheless, God uses it for good. So how does God take difficulty and hurt and pain? And only in his sovereign hands can he mold something like this into being. Look at Job with me. Go back to Job 37. We were there a moment ago. Job 37. So we say God does it for love, chastisement, and glory. We've already pretty much established it's for the glory of God. All things are for his glory. And they should point men back to God and say, do not depend on self. Depend on the Lord. He is your ultimate resource. Notice what it says in Job 37, 13. It says, whether for correction 
or for this world or for loving kindness, we cause it to happen. That's a bad translation, wouldn't it be? Not even a translation. He causes it to happen. So what does this mean for correction? This is chastisement. At times, the Lord uses natural circumstances. In the context, he's actually talking about weather systems. So he's saying in these weather systems, at times, God chastens his creation. And that chastening, guess what happens? Sometimes the innocent are swept away with the wicked. That's why we cannot, sometimes people will say, well, uh, a flood is hit here, a hurricane is hit here, or an earthquake is hit here. It's because those people in that area are so wicked. That is very naive theology. It really is. So if if an earthquake hits, yes, there are stories that one can tell. An earthquake is hit, a fire is hit, and a church was preserved. So one may say, look, see, the Lord is preserving the righteous. But there are many other occasions, if I were to stop right now and say, do you have a friend that was affected by the fires recently? Even if you went back to the Northridge earthquake, some people that lost homes, that attended this church. That's naive theology. What God is saying as a sovereign God, at times it's for correction or for this world. What is he saying? For the world, that is to cause the world to look to him, but at times they do not. Or for loving kindness, he does it for love. Wait a minute, how can you use difficulty for love? Surely the verse should read something like this. The Lord God, since he is a sovereign, almighty God, he stops the earthquake and he stops the flood. And he stops the hell because he loves you so much. No, it says at times he will allow it to come because he loves you. It's an expression of his covenant love because we all know, I think we would agree, that difficult and difficult moments are those moments when we do what most? When we cling most, do we not? It conforms us to the image of Christ. And this is an expression of love. Um, I talk, look, go with me to Psalm 105. So God uses evil. God is a sovereign God, which means he controls all things. God has the right to do as he pleases. God has the power to do as he pleases and a desire to do as he pleases. He is the only one with this prerogative. There are second causes. God uses people and circumstances to bring about his end. Look with me, Psalm 105. I just skipped by it. Psalm 105. I alluded to it earlier, but notice this. Psalm 105. Then in verse 16, it says, And he, that is God, called for famine upon the land, and he broke the whole wheat of staff. He sent a man before them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. They afflicted his feet with fetters. He himself was laid in irons. Notice verse 19, so incredibly important, until the time that his word came to pass. What word? Well, first, that Joseph would be exalted. What word? That his people would, in fact, be afflicted for those 400 and some years. So that means they had to come to Goshen. And eventually there would be a Pharaoh who would not know Joseph. And they would afflict the people. And then God would do what? His word would come to pass. So Joseph knew that they would eventually leave. Joseph knew that there would be an exodus. Because what does Joseph say? Take my bones with you. God will deliver you. 
until his word comes to pass. And sometimes in life, here's the reality. We don't always know that timetable, do we? We don't always know the timetable from prison to being exalted like Joseph. And sometimes that's not in God's timetable. See, it's not always cancer to absolute remission. That's not always God's timetable. It's not always, um, I'm going to lose this loved one. Surely God will intervene. That's not always God's timetable. But we can rest assured that his word will come to pass. Amen. If he has spoken it, it will take place. So what are we to do in the midst of difficulty is to be faithful. And it says, notice, the word of the Lord tested him. That is, tested Joseph when he was in prison. He is molding him into the man he needed to be. Then, verse 20, the the king sent and released him, the ruler of the peoples, and set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions. God's plan unfolding. I want you to see something else. If you look at Psalm 105, as I said, it takes you through this history, uh, this portion of Israel's history. Notice if you're beginning in verse um, 25, see how active God is. And I'm just going to give you sort of these verbal ideas quickly. Verse 25, he turns their heart to hate his people. Who? Egyptians to hate his own people because his word needs to come to pass. He sent Moses, verse 26, right? Verse 28, he sent darkness and made it dark. Verse 29, he turned the waters into blood. Verse 31, he spoke and there was a swarm of flies. He gave them hail for rain, verse 32. Verse 33, he struck down their vines, verse 33. Verse 34, he spoke and locusts came. Verse 36, he also struck down the firstborn in the land, verse 36. 37 says, then he brought them out with silver and gold. So now here's the exodus. And then in verse 39, he spread a cloud for a covering. So he guides them. Verse 40, and he satisfied with the, with the bread of heaven. Verse 41, he opened the rock. Verse 43, he brought forth the people with joy. God is actively involved. His providence unfolding. We've looked already at Job 37. Here's the second principle. In pain and providence, the innocent will sometimes suffer with the wicked. Um, <clears throat> he reigns on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's the idea at Siloam, what happened? There was a tower that fell, and w- did it fall because they were righteous or unrighteous? No, it is just God's providential hand unfolding. Number three, God uses pain and providence to develop the faith of his children. All things working together for good. It is Paul's thorn in the flesh. It's Hebrews 5. It's Jesus Christ. It says that he, he learned from the things which he suffered. It's the book of 1 Peter. As the people of God are going through persecution under Nero, they're being conformed to the image of Christ. I think we all know this, but we must remind ourselves of this reality. So question, if I were to say to you, if I had simple survey question, How many of you desire from your heart to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ? How many of you say amen? Amen. But we know that the path to that is going to be often be, not always, 
but will consistently be what? A path of what? A suffering. I mean, it was A.W. Tozier that says that God, he is doubtful whether or not God can use a man widely until he has hurt him deeply. It's so true. Because when we've been hurt, there's a sense of rest and uh, dependence, and we realize that what little resources we have, and we cry out to the Lord, and we identify more with the Lord Jesus Christ, who was rejected, who was beaten, who was crucified. See, sometimes God uses it to bring the elect to faith. It's also an opportunity to demonstrate compassion. See, when there is difficulty that another is facing, consider Luke chapter 10, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If people didn't go through difficulty, then how do we show compassion? Jesus Christ, if we look to the Gospels, it says often, especially in Matthew, he's moved with compassion. He's moved with compassion because someone is hurting. This could be an indicator of where we are spiritually when we see the pain of others, and then now we can show compassion towards them. We also know that it builds character. Proven character. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 5, 3 through 5. It's used to purify his church. Difficulties come to purify his church. Matthew 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because, in part, in the church today, um, some people, let me put it this way, some people flock to churches because the church is preaching a prosperity gospel, believing that life is going to be free of difficulty and pain. But it's an evil doctrine, is it not? Because it, life is just not that way. It's a false hope. It's used to spread the gospel. You see it in Acts 8. The church flees because of persecution. And because of persecution in the church at Jerusalem, the church spreads. And with the church spreading, what happens? The gospel goes forth. We see this in church history. Um, some of you may know uh, Vlad Balaka. How many of you know Vlad? That worked at the church for a while. He, uh, one of our Grace Advanced churches, he planted a church in Sacramento. It was going really, really, really well. He was here on staff at the church for a bit. Some years ago, and I was just sharing with him this earlier this week. Um, some years ago, he preached the message, young man, young family. And he was preaching, and I had never told him this until this week. And he talks about his dad had become ill, godly man, minister of the gospel. He saw a good example from him. And Vlad, I'll never forget it. He was there in the evening service. I can see it right now. He says he went to the Lord, and he says, Lord, please don't take my dad. Don't take my dad. And then he said, he sort of Vlad paused, and he said, and the Lord took my dad. And I was sharing with Vlad even this week how that it was an encouragement to me and and I prayed for him, and he's a very gifted man. The Lord has blessed the work that's there in Sacramento. But he shared something else with me that I thought interesting, too. He said, yes, I remember that. And he said this to me. He said, yes, in part, I made the decision to go to Sacramento. And as he and I talked for about six months about this church and planting this church, in part, I decided to go to Sacramento because I felt like I needed to be with my mom who had just lost her husband. 
if my dad would have survived, I would have stayed here at Grace Community Church. And I said, isn't that amazing? Providence unfolded that way. Through your hurt, in, in one sense, the Lord said to Vlad, don't stay here. He feels compelled to go to be close to his mom in Sacramento. So he begins to think even more, plant the church in Sacramento, do ministry there, leave Grace Community Church. And now the ministry there is just flourishing. In one sense, the Lord had to take pain and suffering to say, leave Grace Church. And in some ways, the comfort of Grace Church, the surroundings of Grace Church, and go somewhere else. God does that in our lives sometimes. He pushes us. He propels us. And sometimes we're in a, in a situation where it's too comfortable, and the Lord wants to stretch us. So we, everyone in this room has been stretched a bit, have you not? And sometimes you're just saying, Lord, the rubber band's going to break. How much more? But the beauty of it is this. God is an all-wise God, is he not? And that wisdom, he knows uh, how much can you take because the scripture even tells us he doesn't give us more than we're capable. So as he stretches us, our muscles of faith are stretched, and then there's relief. And the muscles are stronger. And they're stronger. And they're stronger. At times, even this morning, I went for a run. And uh, when I go out and there's this hill I come up, and at times I'm coming up that hill, my muscles are, they're aching. But later in the day and next week, I feel, wow, okay, it's better now. My hamstrings are stronger now. In our spiritual life, God stretches us sometimes. In those moments, we're saying, God, where are you? Why is it hurting so much? What, what about this difficulty? What about this other person? How do I help this other person in their difficulty? He's stretching you and them. And I think he does it for this. He wants to create dependence. It's used to create dependence. God wants us to depend on him. We see it in 2 Chronicles 6 and Deuteronomy 4, God wants his people to depend on him. Even Christ in his suffering, Hebrews 5, 7 through 10, crying out. It says God, Christ is crying out, and he was heard because of his piety with loud crying and tears. Sometimes in our dependence, it reveals our heart. Maybe we have idols in our heart that the Lord wants to get rid of. He uses suffering for these reasons and more. Um, I'm going to skip ahead because you'll get all of this. Listen to the words of John Flavel in his Mystery of Providence. He says this, It is the great support and solace of the saints in all the distresses that befall them here that there is a wise spirit sitting in all the wills of motion and governing the most eccentric creatures and their most pernicious designs to blessed and happy issues. And indeed, it were not worthwhile to live in a world devoid of God and providence. If we take some of his vernacular and put it into today, he's saying that... Uh, it doesn't matter to what extreme you are in his creation. 
It doesn't matter how particular the designs for your life and how life is unfolding for you. I wouldn't want to live if I didn't know that there is a God in heaven watching over everything in my life. What a horrible life that would be. Because then what would you have to do? You would have to orchestrate and change and manipulate as opposed to let me rest in providence. Remember, resting in providence isn't passivity. It is an indifference, but it is this reality that I know that there is a God in heaven that's in control and all wise God, and he knows my every need, and I trust that he will meet it in his time. And while I go through this difficulty, I will rest. And I'll remind myself of these truths. And I'll repeat these truths to myself. And maybe I'll need to repeat them to others as well as they go through difficulty. So like the psalmist, while you downcast all my soul, put your hope in God. God is a God to be hoped in. Amen? Amen. All right, the Lord be with you.